Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to The X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. Uh, today, we have a special guest, uh, Colonel Ryan Hill of the United States Air Force. When I started this uh, podcast, I had a goal of bringing a, a diversified uh, viewpoint about leadership and performance. So uh, welcome, uh, Ryan. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great, Doc. And thanks so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for being here. So uh, tell me what you uh, tell me who you are and what you do. All right. Well, I, I guess that, you know, the simple answer is I'm a I'm a colonel in the U.S. Air Force and I'm currently a military professor at the Naval War College. Uh, give a little bit more context to that just for your listeners so they understand kind of the, the perspectives and the biases that that I have bringing in the, into the conversation. Um I am a Christian. That colors my worldview and a lot of my values. I'm a husband of 20 years, married to a, a wonderful lady and, and my best friend. I'm a father of a teenage daughter and an officer uh, now in the Air Force for uh, 22 years. Uh, I will mention that the views I express uh, in this program do not necessarily uh, mirror those of the United States Air Force, the Department of the Navy, or um, the Department of Defense. Uh, so caveat that. Um, what do I do? I, you know, mostly, Doc, I do what I'm told. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as, as I said it jokingly, but I think, you know, there's a lot of truth in that, uh, not just because I'm in the military, but, uh, you know, for those who don't know, a, an officer's career sometimes is fairly diverse. And mine's, uh, mine certainly has been. I started off my career as an A-10 pilot. as the Warthog flying close air support missions. Um, did a couple of deployments, one with the 82nd Airborne in the Army. So I was rucking around Eastern Afghanistan, doing convoy support, things like that. Um, just planning and, and controlling air operations for those guys. Uh, another deployment uh, as a pilot, uh, again, in Afghanistan, supporting coalition ground troops. Um, I, I spent about nine or 10 years in the A-10, and then I transitioned. I actually went to a couple of Army schools, learned to speak Army, and also learned uh, uh, joint and, and military planning. Uh, I used that in a, in a role in, um, in the Republic of Korea. I was the lead operational planner for U.S. forces in Korea uh, for a couple of years. Um, so quite a bit different experience than, than flying my airplane around, um, uh, but a great experience. Uh, after I was done with that tour, I came back to the U.S. Um, and helped stand up a squadron at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia. Um, we... Uh, we were flying A-29s. It's not in the Air Force inventory. We were actually using the aircraft to train uh, Afghan maintainers and uh, pilots in the A-29 light attack aircraft and helping them stand up their combat air force. Uh, started off as the director of operations there, uh, working with an incredible team across the Air Force and really across the world to stand up that squadron, uh, and then became the commander, did that a couple years. When I gave up command, I came here, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, to uh, the Naval War College. And I've been here teaching for the last couple of years in the College of Ethics. I direct a program uh, for a graduate certificate uh, in leadership and ethics as well. So yeah, I've had a, had a fairly diverse career. Uh, you know, what, what do I do? Well, I, I've been an Air Force pilot, an Army planner, and now a, a Navy professor. Uh, so um, you know, that's, <laughs> I, I do what I'm told. <laughs> it certainly seems you, you've gone through some transitions. And uh, maybe before I get into the next question, maybe you can just speak to about that, you know, transitioning from a, you know, from, from an individualist 
you know, being uh, for, for the people who don't know out there, uh, I do know the A10, I'm not sure about the A29, and you can obviously speak to it, uh, that that's a single pilot uh, airplane. So you're, you're up there all alone doing your own thing. Uh, but then over the course of, the, of your 22-year career, you've transitioned into leadership. And I'm just wondering, you know, what can you tell the listeners how you made that transition? Sure. Um, yeah, in the ATA, you're right. You're, you're up there to a degree. Uh, you know, you're by yourself. You're in the cockpit. Um, and, and you're right. There are, even in the trainers, right, there, there is no trainer. It's just, it's just a single seat. You know, so your very first flight in the A-10 is, is solo. Um, but, you, you know, you are up there with the wingman. There is a, a certain amount of leadership um, that's it's almost technical. Um, in, in the way that it it, uh, it comes about, uh, I remember in pilot training, looking at uh, looking at people flying formation at Columbus Air Force Base, and you know they they were coming in back into the pattern, and these airplane, airplanes are so close to each other. How in the world do they do that without hitting each other, right? Um, but really, it's a matter of of training. You know, you start off and and you know you're all over the sky, and the next thing you know, you feel like you're pretty proficient. And, and you know, I flew back in the days of the T-37 before the T-6 came along, and uh, I remember after six months feeling like, man, I you know I'm I'm good at this, right? And then they put you in a T-38, and, and I stink again, right? <laughs> and then you know I, I started to get pretty good at that in another six months, and then you know I, I leave that aircraft and and uh, and start flying the A-29, and I you know behold, I stink again. Um, but it's, it's really a matter of repetition, right? It's, it's habit forming and, uh, and to a degree it's training. You know, there's, there's uh, kind of some conflicting views. Uh, I, I teach in behavioral sciences right now and some conflicting views about the way that we make decisions and, and the best way to go about that. Uh, some people um, really ascribe to more of an intuitive view. Um, uh, you know, even even Clausewitz talked about something called could we, right? That, that, at a glance, to be able to see the battlefield at a glance and sum it all up and know what to do. And to a degree, that's that's what we train to do as, as pilots. Uh, you know, you get so good at flying the airplane that it's kind of like driving a car. You're not really thinking about what you're doing um, with regard to flying. And you're, you're able to dedicate most of your thinking and, and your conscious thought to uh, accomplishing the mission. And most of that is very time compressed, it's very urgent and, uh, and requires quick decision-making. And so we put ourselves through uh, pretty uh, intense training to be able to do that, to be able to think quickly, to have seen those scenarios before and, and recognize those scenarios and, uh, and then implement whatever uh, measures we need to, to, to overcome obstacles, problems, right? It was all very time compressed. And so, you know, when you think about the, the intuition piece, certainly for that level uh, in that place, it's applicable, right? It, it's in that, uh, that we need, it's necessary. There's just not time to do it any other way. We, the, the reflective um, uh, type thinking, there's no, there's no place for that really. Uh, in, in a cockpit, uh, in, you know, in a close air support fight or any other fight uh, for that matter, um, there's just not a lot of time to, to kind of give things deep thought. You know, that's, now when, uh, when we transition, uh, I'm sorry, when we transition uh, to, to higher levels of leadership, um, one thing that I recognize is that now I'm, I'm not in my technical field. I'm no longer necessarily an expert. So, you know, when I became the director of operations uh, and then the commander of a squadron, now I'm, I'm dealing with uh, 
you know, five or six different fields, not in my own. It was, there's maintenance and, and logistics and, uh, and, and a lot of other factors coming in. And I, I don't know those fields, right? Um, and I think there's a tendency sometimes when we're going from, from one realm of leadership to the next to, to carry over that sense of urgency. Um, that, you know, we're the leader and everybody expects us to make the decisions. Uh, there's, there's that, I mean, to a degree it's true. There is that pressure, like you, you're the guy, you know, and, and um, you're supposed to have all the answers, but, but the fact is it's not true, right? That we all, even if we, if we have perfect knowledge, we don't have perfect processing, perfect perspective, right? There's a lot of different perspectives out there that really make a difference and we're limited in the way that we perceive. Uh, so it's really important, I think, to be able uh, in that transition to, to get rid of that kind of false sense of urgency and to realize that we do have time, right? We, we have time to ask questions. Uh, and maybe we, maybe we don't. In certain situations, perhaps we don't. But the higher we move up uh, in an organization, I think the more time we have uh, to make the really big, important decisions. And so kind of slowing time down a little bit um, and, and being able in those moments to suspend your own biases, your own perspectives, and, and humbly <laughs> look around the room and ask people, like, what, what do you think? Right. And, and truly listen to them. And I've heard you talk about this before, you know, that empathetic listening. Uh, it's, it's not just that I'm listening to refute. I'm not just listening to be kind to you to let you say something. Right. I'm actually listening because I care what you have to say and I'm actually going to consider it. And um, and I think that's a huge part of the transition is, you know, you go from being a, an expert and somebody that, that can make quick, um, valid decisions. Uh, in, in very specific circumstances to someone who is, is dealing with a lot, um, a lot less predictability um, and, and a lot more complexity and it requires something greater, right? And so I, it requires us as leaders to really kind of slow down, open up, think more complexly, you know, be able to, to talk to people at a level where we're able to take their perspective, their understanding and add it to our own so that we're not you know, we're not facing this, this complex system with a simple mind, right? And a, a very closed one dimensional mind, you know, we're, we're actually able to open our up our minds and, and deal with environmental complexity with, with two degree, degree mental complexity. You know, you, you just spoke to a number of issues there. And first, I want to talk about that, uh, that habit formation is that, you know, you do it so often and do it so, so, so many times uh, that, when you actually get to do it, you don't really have to think about it. And in, you know, in, in psychology, we, we call that the trust mindset. You just trust yourself and you, and you just let it happen. But then, you know, that transition uh, to leadership, and this is something I think really important for the younger professionals out there, is that, yeah, you're making a lot of decisions, but at this point, you're actually learning how to make decisions. And something my, my father taught me is that, you know, the higher you go in an organization, the fewer decisions you have to make, but the greater consequence they have. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. And so when you're younger, you learn, you know, really how to make those decisions. And, and it's basically a laboratory where you get to make a lot of them. Okay. And some yeah. not better than, than the others, but through self-reflection, you start to figure out how, you know, how you actually made the good ones. So when you get to senior positions like yourself uh, at this point in your career, now you can really take your time 
and consider all the different uh, factors that affect the situation and look at it from multiple perspectives, not only from your own mindset, but also getting the, uh, the, the perspectives of other people just to you know, check your own biases. And I, you know, I think what you're saying, Ryan, is just absolutely crucial for not only for, you know, for, for senior leaders like yourself, but also for younger leaders. Absolutely. And you, know, you talk about habit formation, and, and we do. We, we learn to make decisions through the habits that we form, and especially at lower levels. Uh, but as you in that transition, you know, we we've also built up a habit of making quick decisions, right? And and that's that's one that that uh, may not be that great, right? Then um, no, no, there's a time and place, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but if if that is our habit that that we make decisions and we make them quickly and we trust them, um, you know, that the higher up we get, yes, the fewer decisions we make, the more impact they are, and and typically, the more complex that decision is right and, and the, the more ambiguity uh that there is in that decision and so uh, it, it probably deserves a little bit more time uh than, than the decisions that we were making as a as a junior leader yeah but that whole process of change and your career uh, mirrors this of, of going you know going from novice to expert novice to expert novice to expert you know as you climb that right. ladder, uh is very important because then you, you you begin to reflect upon, well, how did I actually do that? And so it actually slows down, you know, that decision-making process uh, on purpose because of that reflection. And so your, your career has really been just a, a model for, you know, for so many people out there of, okay, this is, you know, what, what do you guys say at the, uh, at the Naval War College? What got me here? Yeah. Well, what got you here may not get you there, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that you, you learn over time, especially when you know when you start anew, uh, you, you learn that uh, um, maybe you weren't as good as you thought you were, right? And that's that's important, right? It's an important lesson to learn and, and to take with you. There's some humility that comes in that. And it's like, oh, well, um, you know, like I, I thought I was pretty good and here I am starting all over again, right? Um, so, so absolutely, it's, it's like eating some humble pie from time to time. Well, Ryan and I have a, a common interest is the uh, Air Force Academy football program. And I would tell the coaches, you know, if you always do what you always done, you'll always get what you always got. That's right. <laughs> you know, so, 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 so many people get wrapped up into that one strength that they believe is their strength, right? that self-identity, and they fail to take it or, 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 or they fail to actually challenge that when they get into another position. Yeah. with greater responsibility. That's right. So uh, let me get back to some of this. Let me, uh, let me ask you, what is the best aspect of being a leader? Best aspect. Um, gosh, you know, I, this is, there's a lot of great things to be a leader, right? And there's a lot of bad things. <laughs> there's, there's some burdens that come along with it. I shared this story not long ago. I was, I was speaking at a Naval War College graduation and I've used this illustration in class before. It's a true story. So when, when COVID kicked off, uh, like everybody, we were just looking for some excuse to get out of the house, right? And, uh, and, and my, my dog was in heaven. So we took our dog for a walk three or four times a day, right? Um, and so one day my, my daughter and I are, are taking, a, taking her dog for a walk. And it's just this, you know, 13 pound little white puffy thing, right? And, and so we're taking the dog for a walk and it's, it's pretty confident. You know, she's, she's almost prancing out there in front of us walking. And, um, but every time we get to a, 
a fork in the road or some sort of intersection, the dog slows down, starts looking over his shoulder, like, so do I go left or do I go right here? You know, and I, and I, I brought that up to my daughter and I, I called her attention to it. And she said something I thought was pretty profound. She said, yeah, I think she likes to lead. No, I'm sorry. I think she likes to be out front, but she doesn't want to lead. <laughs> right. I think she likes to be out front, but she doesn't want to lead. And I, you know, I think that's, that's true. Being out front is cool. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's something to that. And, you know, I've heard you talk about before that there's positional power. Right. And, and when we're put in a position of power, um, it's like a, it's an achievement. It's an award of sorts. If, if we think about it that way. Um, but, but I think, I think that's kind of a, a, a cheap, if you will, uh, satisfaction of leadership. I think the real um, satisfaction of leadership is in the leading, right? It's not in the position itself. It's in the leading. It's in the hard work. And there, there's something more, much more satisfying and rewarding that comes from the hard work of leadership than just being in the positional power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think one of the, the greatest things about being a leader is working towards something that's worthwhile something that's meaningful, you know, and uh, Simon Sinek talks about the why of leadership. You know, what is it that we're trying to do? Um, I think that that's one thing. And then the other, the other part that's just equally important is, is seeing the team come together to accomplish it. Right. Um, When, when you're out in front, right. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's one thing, but, but leading your team, uh, into into pulling together and working together and sharing that experience, right? Not not just um, having people do what you want in order to accomplish something, but we as a team accomplish it together, right? We share that experience of of, of, of accomplishing something that's worthwhile. I think that's the greatest aspect of being a leader, right? It's that feeling, it's that uh, that deeply satisfying uh, piece of leadership, and and I think what calls a lot of us to it, right? That that I, I desire to be a leader because of, of this, right? It's, it's, a, it's a higher calling. It's something that's worthwhile and it's, it's leading people uh, to do something greater than, than any one of us could accomplish on our own. It's providing that sense of purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So is there a difference between the best aspect of being a leader and what you see as the primary leadership responsibility? Um. Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I think it, it, there's a central piece of both of them, right? And that's that's the mission itself, right? And when we talk about the best aspect, it's it's to a degree, it's accomplishing that mission. And and there's really that's an interesting question the way that you framed it there because I think there's a dynamic there between you know the people that we lead and the satisfaction of seeing people succeed in something and the thing that we're we're trying to achieve or that sense of purpose, right? Uh, and we, we talk about this in the Air Force quite a bit and the military at large, I think, um, you know, is, is it mission first or is it people first, right? Um, and there's, there's a saying that I've heard that tries to kind of equalize that a little bit. It was, it was mission first and people always. And, you know, I kind of like that. Um, that resonates to a degree. But I think that there's, there's also another way of looking at this maybe uh, where, where it's not necessarily a priority. I think sometimes when we prioritize things that way, we tend to sacrifice one for the other, 
right? So if I if I put the mission first, then I'm maybe I'm willing to sacrifice people in order to, to accomplish the mission. Or if I put people first, maybe I jeopardize the mission because I've you know I've, I've sacrificed it in some way or neglected it. Um, I think it may be better, and and I try to I try to work through this. Um, if you think about like a wagon wheel, right? And in the middle is the mission. This is the thing that we're, we are an organization to do this. This is our why, this is our purpose, this is our, our reason for being, right? That's at the hub. And all the spokes that come out, right? Those are the things that make it happen. And one of those is, is people, you know, and you could, you could think, well, you know, you got, you got people, equipment, uh, there's training, uh, your, your finances, your communications, all those things. These are parts of your mission. These are the things that, that, that need your attention, certainly, to make the mission happen. Um, but they're always, right, relative to the mission. They're always looked at in the context of what we're trying to do. And at any one point, they could be the priority, right? Um, and depending upon the situation, and we and we always want to stay in balance with the mission. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about uh, what is your primary responsibility, I think it's you know, I think there's a central responsibility that we have to accomplish what we're what we're set out to do. You know, what we're meant to do, what the organization is built for. I think that's the the central responsibility that we have. But on any given day, you know, we we may really have to prioritize one thing over another in order to accomplish that, right? And so there's tons of responsibilities that we have, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that they all have to be viewed uh, with respect in, in in the context of accomplishing the overall mission, right? And so, um, you know, and there's something I used to, to tell my squadron and it's not as, you know, it's not as quippy as, uh, as mission first people always, but I told me, you know, I will absolutely take care of you to the best of my ability. I will take care of you. I will take care of your family within the context of accomplishing the mission. Right mm-hmm. now, that's not very quippy. It's not something you're going to put on a poster in a squadron or something like that. But I, I think it, you know, it, it kind of communicates that point. And I think they appreciated that. Right. You know, the, to, to realize that we are all a part of accomplishing this mission. Right. And um, and those other responsibilities will come along with it within the context and, and with respect to uh, accomplishing that mission, which is which is something we're all set out to do. Yeah. What you're alluding to is, is what I call paradox management. Is that you know paradox is, is is basically fusing two ends of two polar, of apparently two polar opposites, mm-hmm. and you know so people are the mission, and you know what you said was very insightful is that on any given day, those factors can change. Right? Yeah. So yeah, we want to accomplish the mission, and we want to get the you know do the best thing for our people. Right? But depending on the day, we have to, in, you know, we have to integrate the, these different variables that come in, right? and it may yeah. be different on Tuesday than it was on than, than it was on Saturday. Right. So, but 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 how that uh, the 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 leader integrates that, and as long as they're the leader is, is constantly communicating with the you know w- w- with their people, then they're up to date, and because they you know by this time they know. You know, the, 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 they know that the leader is just not, you know, a mercenary, right. okay? that they're just exactly. going to sacrifice the people for the mission. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Is that, you know, they built up, you know, that bank account of trust and they know that, you know, the leader is going to do the right thing for them. Right. But they also recognize that, you know, the leader has this complex job. Mm-hmm. 
right, of, of, of surveying, you know, the, the environment and seeing what the variables are, yeah. right? what they can control and what they can't control. Right? And then, you know, basically putting it in, into that calculus. So. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and that trust that you've built up is, is them understanding that you are not going to sacrifice them without good cause, right? So I, I am not unnecessarily going to put you through more than you need to be put through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, will, I will do my best to take care of you, right? And, and I think they know that, right? That, that, that's that trust that you're talking about there that, that you've built up with them, that I, I am considering you in all these decisions, right? I'm not just throwing you to the side and, and don't care whether or not you know, you're working extra hours for no reason, for example. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's, that's the trust that, that we have to build up in our organizations to be able to, to communicate that effectively and, and to execute it effectively. Yeah. yeah, I've been watching some documentaries recently uh, you know, about World War II and, and, and some other things. And once those fascist regimes go down, the entire country is just so elated. Right, because they know they've been they've been being used because yeah. the the fascists you know and, and 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 those type of leaders are just willing to give up anything for the mission you know for their personal mission right? rather than you know being trying to you know you know manage that complexity between those two you know between the, those two variables yeah. so, let, let me ask you this what advice would you give to other leaders regarding leadership effectiveness um, you know, we, we've already kind of talked about, uh, some of this, I think, but when, um, well, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, you know, when it comes to leadership effectiveness that I, I will talk about, um, leading in complexity. I, I, I just had an article published in the, the journal of character and leader development on this topic. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of share the, the underlying premise of the article, because I think it, it really speaks to leadership effectiveness within, different environments of complexity. And so what I did was I kind of broke it out into into three categories of leaders. And I used the illustration of a desk leader, a conference table leader, and a round table leader. And the the desk leader is is somebody that works in a fairly benign um, status quo, non-dynamic organization, right? So you think maybe of a factory floor or something like that, if, if everything, you know, if you expect that everything is going to maintain status quo, that, that's kind of the environment that we're talking about. And, and a desk leader is somebody that, that they, they direct people, right? That, that's their communication style. They're very direct. You know, you kind of sit, picture somebody sitting at a desk and, and giving orders across the table at someone that's standing up in their office, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and all they really expect is compliance, right? The, the desk leader is somebody that, you know, they are an expert. Uh, I will I will tell you and make you an expert, and now you just go and do the thing that I tell you to do. Um, leadership style is generally micromanaging. You know, so I'm I'm the expert, so let me let me over shoulder you if if necessary. Uh, and then and then feedback comes in the form of critique. Like, did you do it right or did you not? Uh, not a lot of instruction required, right? You just need to do it this way. That's it. Compliance. Now we typically think, well, that's not a very good leader. Right. Like in our minds, like, I don't want to work for that person, but that doesn't mean they can't be effective. Right. They could be effective given the right where things don't change. And you just, you know, like you're just very predictable output versus the input. Right. Um, Now, more of an aspirational leader is somebody that we think about as a conference table leader. And I think this is somebody that 
you know, I grew up in the Air Force. This is this is kind of your model leader. It's the person that sits at the head of the table. And, and instead of just being directive, they're inspiring. This is an inspirational leader. And, and they have great ideas and great thoughts. And that's the reason they're there, right? That's the reason they're the leader because they, they have these great ideas and great thoughts and have a lot of experience. And so they inspire. And what they're expecting instead of compliance is buy-in. Right. And I, I want you at my table to buy into the concepts that we're that we're teaching, that we're uh, that we're propagating here in this organization. And, and instead of, of just micromanaging, they delegate. Right. So each person has their job. You go out, you do this. And, and that's the expectation. And then for feedback, uh, it's actually constructive criticism. Right. Like, I want you to get better. This is what we did wrong. Here's what we need to do right next time, right? And and so if you think about it, that's that's the leadership I think most of us were taught, and it's kind of held up as this is this is it. This is the way that you need to be as a leader. And the problem there, and it's great. I mean that works in most organizations. I think, right? I think the problem is when you get into a very complex environment. Uh, again, you as the leader, you know a lot. You're in that position because you know a lot, but you don't know everything, right? You don't know everything and your scope of responsibility has grown. And probably most of your, your listeners, they find themselves in this position where the scope of responsibility is well beyond their own expertise. Right. And so even if it's not, even if I know everything, again, I'm still limited in my own processing. I'm, I'm still limited in my own perspective. And so, um, and so I'm limited in the way that I can approach the complex environment that I'm dealing with. Uh, and so a roundtable leader is one that, that operates at a different level with regard to mental complexity, right? It's not just the ideas that I have that I'm bringing forth and I expect your buy-in. Instead, they're more collaborative, right? So they're sitting at a round table. And what I'm looking for is I'm looking for your input. Um, and Admiral Scott Swift came and spoke to us at the Naval War College one day, and, and he said, um, who's the smartest person in the room? Well, you retired four-star are probably the smartest person in the room. And he's like, no, 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 that's the, that's the problem, right? That's the problem. I'm not, and I need your input, but because I'm here, sometimes I don't get it, right? Uh, like you just defer to me. And so there's, there's certainly setting an environment among your staff and among your, your employees to say, hey, you know, this is an environment where you can speak up, where I am listening and, and where I want your collaboration. And, and so I think that setting up that dynamic to where the leader actually hears from people, right? And understands, and like we were talking about before, is able to suspend your own bias, to put yourself in their shoes, to exercise some perspective taking, some, some cognitive empathy, uh, you know, where I'm actually thinking and trying to see from your perspective. Right. This is something we could really use in America, I think. Right. <laughs> so trying to see from from your perspective. And so it, it's more collaborative. And in that people don't just have buy in at that point. They're co-owners. Right. They're co-owners in the organization. It's not just they bought into your ideas. They've actually come up with the ideas. They've helped formulate what it is that your that your your plan is and your strategy. Um, and instead of just merely delegating, you empower people, right? And the difference there is you're completely, when you empower someone, you completely expect them to make mistakes, right? Uh, I empower you to go forth and do this, make mistakes, mess up, you know, and, and we're going to learn from that. And that's the next point, right? It's not just constructive criticism, it's learning. And that's to say that I value you, I value what you do for this organization. And if you made that mistake, guess what? Probably any of us could have made that mistake. So let's all learn from it. 
right? Let's let's all learn from this collaboratively. And and I think in a complex environment where you know it's not the simple input equals output, where you get input, and quite frankly, you're not really sure what the output might be, right? Um, you need that. You need you need a clearer picture of of the problems that you're up against, right? The different perspectives, uh, the more nuance uh, that you can see in the problem, the better off you are. And then, and then quite frankly, you know, it lends itself to a lot more options, um, that you have to, to come up against that problem, right? Uh, a lot more options for, uh, for making things right again, or, or for taking advantages, uh, you know, in, of opportunities in the future, creating opportunities in the future, things that you may not have imagined. You know, you think about Netflix, right? Um, you know, at, at blockbusters probably, you know, they're, they're, they may be at this conference table leadership model, right? Um, where they have some really good ideas and they've had great ideas for a really long time. But the environment's changing and they didn't recognize it, right? Maybe somebody did. Maybe somebody at the table recognized it, right? And, and wouldn't it have been great if they had a roundtable leadership approach to where that input gets taken into account, right? And, and, and now they're able to adapt and to flex and, and to be able to survive in their business, um, that didn't happen. I think that happens to a, a lot of organizations uh, at different levels and in different ways and in different levels of severity as well. Uh, but certainly, you know, we, we operate, especially at higher echelons, in a very complex environment where things change pretty often um, and, and it's dynamic. And, and, you know, why would we constrain ourselves to only what we know and what we think when we have so much intellectual firepower around us, you know, that, that we could bring in? And so, um, Leadership effectiveness, right? That's that's where we started this conversation. I think I think it's understanding where you are, right? Am, am I in a simple environment? Can I afford to be like a desk leader, or or am I at a point where yeah, I, I deal with a lot of complexity, and perhaps I need to take more of a of a roundtable leadership perspective, uh, so that so that I'm able to you know to to deal with the complexity within the environment more effectively. You know, one of the greatest gifts I, I, I've ever received was when I arrived at the Air Force Academy being a civilian professor and, you know, highly structured, highly competitive environment and how many leaders, how many coaches wanted to learn more about influence, wanted to learn more about persuasion, wanted to learn, you know, more about collaboration. And so it's, you know, it's been, it's been out there for, you know, over 25 years. Uh, we know what the answers are, you know, but it's just a matter of, of, of taking the time to do it. It's, it's managing yeah. the impulse control of, of stepping back into that authoritarian role, right? And say, well, wait a minute, let's, let's, let's move back and empower these people because, you know, they're, they're smart people, right? And the, the, this is the other thing that, that the leaders and the coaches at the Air Force Academy knew is that the cadets were the brightest people there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all right. So let's let's bring them in, right? Yeah. And 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 one of the habits you know, talking about formation, is is that yeah, it's highly structured and highly highly competitive, right? And cadets are trained to do what they're told to do, just like right. in the beginning of the interview, right? But when you empower them, right, and say, well, you know, by just saying, well, what do you think about this? It just provides so much freedom you know, that, that the empowerment is just oozing out of them. Absolutely. You know, and so I mean, the human capital is just, you know, exponentially ignited. Yeah. And that, that's something, we, you know, we didn't even talk about is that 
when you feel empowered, there's a that's a lot more job satisfaction, right? You enjoy coming to work in, a, in an environment where you know that your your voice matters. Yeah, you're valued. Absolutely. You know, so like, you know, it's like, you know, the, what's what's the old quote? You know, for 25 years, you paid me, you know, for for my back and my hands, but when you know, when when you could have had my brain for free. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah, so I think well, there's. There's another aspect from that, you know, we talk a lot about diversity and, um, and surrounding yourself with a diverse staff. And it, you know, I think that's important. It really is. Mm-hmm. But it's, but it's worthless, if you're not able to hear them. Right. And you know, if you if you had this idea that, you know, like, I have all the good ideas, and let me just tell you about them, and I expect your buy in really matter if you have a diverse staff or not right if if i have a diverse staff and i'm able to listen to them now i get different perspectives right i I get i get to hear about things that i never would have thought about before like you're talking about bringing in the cadets Mm -hmm. uh, the young the young people who have different ideas than us old parts you know like that's important that's important it's a perspective that that we need to listen to but how often would we right how often do we uh defer to someone or allow someone or empower someone that's that's that much a junior to us, right? Um, but boy, we can really it really learn from them and, and benefit from that if we're if we're able to listen to the diversity within our staff. I think and it just kind of reminds me of a comic strip where you know an authoritarian leader is being convinced that he should you know bring in you know uh, you know in, you know be more inclusive, right? right? And then the next pain is you know, is that he's just talking over everybody, even though they brought in this really diverse crew, all right, is that that habit has been formed, and it's not going to break just because of, you know, you bring in a a diverse crew. Right, right. Uh, Let me ask you, who were your leadership role models uh, while while you were being uh, conditioned, and what did you learn from them? Um. Well, I tell you, I have had, I'm extremely blessed. I've had so many great leaders uh, through my career I, and really through my life. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people would would start off with their parents and I, I'm the same. My, my parents are amazing. Uh, I mean, not only just from a standpoint of displaying outstanding character and integrity, but uh, they really, you know, like they empowered me um, and they allowed me to mess up and they continued to believe in me and support me, um, you know, growing up and I think that's important. You know, I really do. Uh, and, and I certainly had that and, and that was wonderful. And, and that's something that I think is, is, is indicative of a lot of the, the, what I would consider the best leaders that I've had or people that, uh, that have empowered me. And I know it wasn't just me, right. It was, it was everyone else. Now, obviously I recognized it more when they were empowering me, but they were the kind of people that empowered their people and, and allowed them to make mistakes and continue to support them. Right. Uh, and, and supporting them through those mistakes and not just discounting them or disregarding them or, or, or shoving them to the side um, because they made mistakes. And, and I think that's really important. And I think about uh, my first squadron, Doc Strasberger was, was my uh, Doc, not his given name, right? It's his call sign. Um, A-10 squadron commander, uh, outstanding. You know, and I, you know, I was a rookie uh, in, in the A-10, not doing great, <laughs> you know? And he gave me an opportunity to, to go on and to fly A-10s after not a given right but but uh but he certainly uh gave me that opportunity i know steve works was uh was uh army colonel that i worked for when i was on staff in korea uh he he, he empowered me you know he, he said all right you, you've got some good ideas here i'm gonna let you present these to the to the generals you know um I, quite frankly a lot of them were kind of harebrained ideas 
And <laughs> you know, I got debriefed on him from time to time, but he allowed me to, to work through that, right? And he wasn't afraid to go before the generals with this major, you know, that has a harebrained idea. Um, and, and he allowed me and empowered me to, you know, to present those ideas and to take the licks for it. Right. <laughs> um, and even here at the work college, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very supported by, um, my boss, uh, Admiral, uh, retired Dean Klein, um, Peg Klein. And she's, you know, she's allowed me to, uh, to, to operate here, you know, and empowered me in, in the position that I'm in. And it's just a one, I've enjoyed that, right? I really enjoy that. And so from a leadership perspective, certainly, you know, and we just talked about it, when you empower people, they enjoy coming to work, right? And you get a lot more out of them. Um, and I think, you know, that that's something that I've been blessed to receive. And it's certainly a lesson to me um, for, you know, leadership principles and leadership style is, is to support people, empower them, um, and, and, you know, help them uh, to continue to to pursue their dreams and to continue to rise in, in leadership challenges. You know, I think that's such an important point for, you know, all the listeners out there, because, you know, every leader will say something, well, th that's not the way we do it here, or this place is different. Uh, and so when you hear, you know, a senior officer from, from the military talk about empowerment and freeing your people to make mistakes, uh, I think that's really valuable uh, because that's really the only way you're going to get the best out of people. And if you have such a narrow margin of error, one, your strategy is not right. Okay. And then two, your confidence is way down right? because perfectionists don't perform well under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, there are unrecoverable mistakes. Right. And, and it's probably worth acknowledging that because I, I can hear that, you know, I can hear that running through some people's minds as they listen to this. Right. There are mistakes that you can make that are that you just can't recover from. Mm -hmm. um, those are not the mistakes that we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, though, or, uh, you know, the, the do or die kind of situations. But but certainly, you know, when we step back, sometimes things are probably a little less serious than we think. Right. And, and probably a little less critical. Than we think now those, those those decisions do exist right and maybe we hold them for ourselves as opposed to delegating them those really you know critical non-redeemable type decisions um but we also need to understand that there's there's a whole lot of wiggle room in there right and and i, I love what you just said about maybe your strategy is messed up if there's not enough you know margin for error in there um yeah so i, I think we do need to step back and say hey you know what i can probably recover from this you know, and this is, the, there's value in allowing someone to mess up here, right? Mm -hmm. I don't need to be perfect right there. Yeah. And, and your perspective from the military where, you know, there those uh, what, what was the term you used? Uh, uh, irredeemable mistakes? I think I've used two or, two or three different terms, but yeah, yeah. that's, that's well, it. When you talk about that, you're talking in terms of lives. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so there's no greater consequence than that. Right. And that's something that I think that a lot of other industries uh, don't really realize is that they look at things, you know, as do or die. And it's not that way. Right. Yeah. You know, there is yeah. a margin of error. Right. And, and so many times leaders will just narrow that margin of error to such a degree that they, you know, that, that they basically hamstrung themselves only because of through their own mindset, through their own belief system. And then they, yeah. you know, then they infect the rest of the organization with that. So, yeah. 
That's, uh, that, I think that's a really valuable point that you made that, uh, yes, there are irredeemable mistakes and the leader can be there to you know, provide a safety net and to spot that person so they don't make that mistake. Right? Yeah. But in the end, uh, there's no greater irredeemable mistake than what the military has to face. And when, and when a leader recognizes that they are the person responsible for losing lives, Right. That's there's no greater responsibility than that. So that I think that I think that just puts a uh, you know some uh, a, a sobriety on leadership that most people don't you know aren't aren't aware of or aren't certainly talking actively about. But obviously, you guys in the military do all the time. Yeah, we, we do, and it's a hard thing to understand that there are times when you may have to send people into that situation, right? Um, and um, and there, there are situations that, you know, you look at an opportunity versus risk, right? And, and sometimes, uh, you know, maybe that's not a, it, it seems like a very, um, you know, kind of, uh, I, I guess, disinterested way of, of stating it, um, mm-hmm. but there's a lot in that, right? That that when we weigh risk, we have to we have to really consider what it is we're going after, right? Is this worth it? Is this worth the lives that may be spent? Um, and and those are the decisions. Those are the tough decisions that you know. And and do we make mistakes? We do, right? I mean, no doubt about it. Uh, we we make mistakes in those, and 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 at times there there may be lives that are spent that that maybe shouldn't have been. And, and there's a lot of complexity in, a, in, in, in combat, uh, a lot of things that are just completely unpredictable and it's almost unavoidable, uh, but to the largest extent possible. Yeah, I mean, those, those are the situations where you really want to, to measure your actions uh, and, and, and make sure that the risk really is worth the reward, um, you know, strategically, um, you know, for the, for the price you're paying for. All right, so let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. How do you relax or celebrate? <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's great that you asked this question. Um, you know, especially you know, we think about relaxing. It's hard for leaders to relax sometimes, you know, because uh, the burdens that come with leadership. You know, and you're thinking about your people, and you're thinking, about, yeah, yeah, a lot going on, and and especially here in in the COVID environment, um, one I think there's extra extra pressure on your people, right? There's, there's more going on. There's more fears. There's, you know, life uh, difficulties that perhaps weren't there before. And another aspect of it is a lot of us are working from home, right? And so when do you turn it off? When do you relax? When's my work day done? You know, it's, it's one thing to walk out of the office, shut the door and go get in the car and drive home and have, you know, maybe that 10, 15, you know, 20 minute drive to to decompress and 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 to start to relax and get back into normal mode you know my commute now is to walk down the steps right like i I walk down the hall down the steps and i'm in my living room um it's it's hard to know and that's something that you know early on during this pandemic it was difficult you know i felt like i was working all the time i just didn't know when to stop and it's something I've, i've had to be more intentional about right that you know like at a certain time every day the computer, the computer's off. We're unplugged. We're sitting down. We're having dinner together as a family, um, you know. And, and so I think it's, it's being intentional with the relaxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I will go out for a walk, you know. So I'll just step away. We'll go for a walk, uh, and I think it's important to do that. Um, celebration. My philosophy is celebrate early and often. 
right? <laughs> and this is, you know, I think that's important. You know, it's, it's actually, uh, you know, John Cotter's eight steps of, of change model. Uh, one of his steps is, is to create short-term wins, right? And those build momentum and it, and it tells your team, Hey, we're, we're doing something important here. We're accomplishing something. And, and, you know, so even, even here in my house, we do that, you know, like, Hey, we just, we got all the laundry done. High five, right? Like <laughs> these are victories that we can celebrate. Um, and so I think it's important you know, to, to keep morale up, especially in times like this, you know, to keep morale up, to, to celebrate even the small victories, you know? Yeah. And I so think that, you can. that leads to um, just the assumption of, of entitlement is that when leaders don't celebrate those small victories, they, 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 there's a sense of entitlement of those victories. And that can really lead to problems down the road. Uh, but it also, yeah. you know, is, is a certain, uh, you know, lens into their character as far as who they are and, and what they're all about. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a big believer. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's, a, that's a great point. It, by celebrating the victory, in some way, we're expressing thankfulness, right? They were thankful for the, they, they were, they were gracious for the victory, uh, as opposed to just victory, right? Celebrating it is, as I think, an a, a important part of, of being thankful and, and understanding there's not a given, right? That this is worthy of celebration. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. and, and people made valuable contributions to it, and they should be recognized yeah. as well. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I want to uh, reiterate that uh, Colonel Hill's views presented um, uh, do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, Department of Navy, or the Department of Defense. Uh, Ryan, is there anything else that you want to add before we uh, close this out? No, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you, you having me on your show here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And it's always great catching up with a, uh, with a Zoomy. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for uh, listening to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, to, to the X Factor podcast. We'll see you next time.